I'm Hargard. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. I'm a, it's my pleasure to serve as the, the pastor of this church. And uh, again, we're really glad uh, to be here together uh, on this Sunday morning. Uh, before I dive into the teaching, though, I, I want to um, recognize what's happening in our world this week and take a moment to pray. As many of you know uh, from the news headlines, uh, there's been a, just a traumatic uh, event in Turkey, Syria. Uh, the earthquake that has taken the lives of almost 25,000 people now. I mean, the loss of life is just staggering when you think about that many souls um, lost. And uh, I was at a, a, a gathering this week for EFCA, uh, pastors and ministry leaders, and uh, our, our, that's our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America. And uh, the, the head of our, our international uh, ministry, uh, he was talking to us uh, about what's taking place in Turkey and in Syria. And we have some people uh, on the ground there. And uh, he was reminding us that uh, in Turkey, there's over 81 million people uh, in that country and only 10,000 Christians. I mean, think about the, you know, just the, the small presence of the church in that community. Um, but already, many of those believers in Christ are seeing this as an amazing opportunity to serve and to love their neighbors. And they're actively doing so. Um, he told a story of uh, this one um, family. Unfortunately, the, the husband, who's a pastor, he and his wife were killed in the earthquake. And they had a 10-year-old child who was saved. And the 10-year-old's immediate response was to start talking about how suffering is part of the Christian life. And I just don't have a faith that, that's quite that strong, and I hope to have one. Uh, so I want to pray this morning uh, for all who are suffering, but in particular for our brothers and sisters in Christ you know, who are serving Christ uh, on the ground there, looking to share the gospel. Because uh, so often, in the wake of these tragedies, uh, the light shines bright against the darkness. And so we want to pray for that. Uh, also, uh, this week I'm going to send out uh, in our email, our weekly newsletter, uh, there'll be an opportunity if you want to give uh, towards relief efforts. The EFCA has um, uh, a REACH Global uh, Crisis Response Team, and what they do is, is churches give towards this, individuals give towards this, and then over years um, they set up ministries. So it's not just a one-time you know, meeting, uh, just a, a, a one-time need. It's they come in and meet tangible needs in a way that helps plant churches, and so they always see these as opportunities, not just to meet tangible needs, but to meet spiritual needs as well. So there'll be a link uh, in the email uh, newsletter this week that you can check out that uh, uh, EFCA crisis response uh, giving opportunity, and I encourage you to do so. Will you join me in prayer now, though? Lord, we come to you, um, and uh, Lord, I'm just really struck by the mixture of emotions today. Uh, on one hand, it's a beautiful day, and we're, we're glad to celebrate and to come together and sing truth about you. Um, you know, we're even thankful for opportunities like watching the Super Bowl with friends and family, and yet we also live in a world where horrific things like an earthquake that kills 25,000 people happens. And so, Lord, we, we just pray, have mercy. Uh, Lord, you know um, those that are suffering. Uh, you love those that are suffering, and we pray you be merciful and near to them. And I pray you be uh, gracious, and Lord, you would um, strengthen your church in this time, Lord, to be uh, effective as they minister. God, I pray that you would cross over some of the great cultural gaps there between Christians and Muslims in Turkey and Syria. And God, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine brightly. So God, in the wake of this disaster, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Our Lord, in Turkey, in Syria, as in heaven. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, if you have a Bible, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 today. Uh, for those of you that have been uh, tracking along with this series, you know that there's only six chapters uh, in the book of Ephesians, so we're getting close to the end of this series. Uh, the first half of this book, chapters 1 through 3, was really focused on 
what Christ has done, opening up our eyes to the reality of Jesus Christ, that we live in a world where things are not as they seem. Uh, Jesus is far greater than our world thinks him to be. He's not just a good teacher. Uh, He's not just a wonderful moral man. Uh, He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, who has come, taken our sin upon himself, and is now uh, opening up to us, not just in eternity, uh, in heaven one day, but a life with him right now uh, that essentially is heaven on earth. It was what the scriptures claim, that we now can be connected to him, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit that changes lives. And so Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are opening up our eyes to this reality. Then we go to the second half of the book. It's really focused on how we walk this truth out, how we live in light of the gospel. And so we've heard a lot of practical application. A couple weeks ago, talking about marriage. Last week, uh, Bjorn shared, uh, talking about parenting. And uh, this week, we come to a passage that, quite frankly, uh, has been quite tough uh, for many people to process Uh, throughout history, and you'll see why here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, I'll read it, and then we'll dive in for the morning. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Uh, This morning, as we look at this text, we're going to consider two basic questions, all right? So if you're note takers, here's our two questions for the morning. The first one is, what's up with that? All right, what's up with that? And the second one is, how does this apply to us? So first question, what's up with that? Um, If you weren't uncomfortable, confused, maybe even angry by what I just read, then either you were already asleep in this message, or maybe you've been part of the church for so long that you've forgotten how offensive this sounds. Uh, To our 21st century American ears, Instructions to slaves and masters should make us at least ask a few questions. I mean, we live in a society today that's still experiencing generational effects from the horrific institution of slavery. Uh, A few years ago, um, I had the privilege of going down to Montgomery, Alabama uh, with a group of uh, EFCA district superintendents and ministry leaders. Um, I'm I'm the short guy in in the picture there. Um, and during those meetings in Montgomery, uh, we visited uh, a couple places. One was the Legacy Museum, and uh, the Legacy Museum is located on the site of a former slave warehouse uh, where black people were kept waiting to be sold at auction. And uh, this narrative museum you know, walks visitors through the painful history of the slave trade in our country and the resulting consequences that have rippled throughout history to our day. I mean, to this day, we still experience you know, racial tension and prejudice. And some of you probably are aware, I mean, just even this past summer, um, a group hung a banner on the overpass in Portsmouth of Route 1 that said, keep New England white, uh, right here in Portsmouth. Um, during my trip to Montgomery, I also visited the National Memorial to Peace and Justice. You see the picture here. 
uh, it memorializes the more than 4,000 African Americans that were killed between 1877 and 1955, which is after the 13th Amendment was passed. And many of these people died in lynchings, which is what this picture depicts. All of those things hanging uh, are states with lists of the names of the people that were hung or lynched in those states. And it was staggering to walk through this monument and just see the enormous scope of the tragedy that's happened in our country. It's one thing to know from textbooks that slavery and racism are part of our history. It's another thing to stand on the ground where men, women, and children were bought and sold um, and to read the advertisements that were written in newspapers and to look at the pictures depicting lynchings. But what I found even worse, the worst part of the whole experience for me was that right beside the slave warehouse stood a church where many of those who were bought and sold and were abused and even killed um, by their masters, their masters were members of this church. Uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, who some of you might know, uh, was born a slave, but he escaped and became a statesman and leader in the abolitionist movement. He described the great hypocrisy of Christians in our country who were engaged in the slave trade. And he said this, he said, we have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of the pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand. And what a uh, hard, hard quote. It's an undeniable fact that while many wonderful Christians opposed slavery and worked to end the slave trade, many other Christians owned slaves and advocated for slavery. And this passage of scripture that I just read was used by those people to justify the institution of slavery in our country. So many people read this today, especially outside the church, and they say, what's up with that? And it keeps many people from even considering Christianity. If Christianity, you know, condones slavery, I'm out. And this passage causes many Christians in the church today to not really trust their Bibles, thinking, oh, you know, the Bible's kind of like part of an old history. If it speaks to these things, and maybe I can trust in Jesus, but really trust the Bible? So you can see how if we're going to actually get anything out of this text today, we have to first deal with the question, what's up with that? Now, I'm going to do this by looking at context, and Bjorn did a great job last week. Uh, Bjorn um, talked about the context for uh, parents and children in the Ephesians instruction. And we're going to consider three types of context. Uh, the literary context, the purpose of this letter, the cultural context, understanding house codes, then the historical context, uh, understanding slavery in the first century. Aren't you guys excited you came today? <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's dive in here. Uh, first, we will not be able to understand this instruction if we don't get the literary context. The Apostle Paul, he is writing a letter to a church. It's as if Chris Clinch, the, the senior pastor of Beef Free Community Church, was writing a letter to us here in Beef Free Dover today. He's writing a personal letter to people. Now, Paul is not writing a manifesto, an op-ed piece. This isn't 
what are my thoughts about the social institutions of the day? It's a personal letter. I mean, just imagine if you had a friend or a loved one um, who was fighting in a war, or maybe was imprisoned, and you wrote them a letter. It would be a very different um, intention for writing than if you were writing a research paper um, on the institution or the, the practice of war or the prison system. You, you want to communicate to your loved one your desire for them, your affection, to encourage them and, and to help guide them as they live within that setting of war or prison. So Paul just isn't interested, this isn't his purpose in writing, to either condone or condemn the social institution of slavery. He wants to help Christians follow Jesus on Monday morning. After they hear this letter on a Sunday, they're going to be living in a culture that slavery exists in. And the question is, how are you going to follow Jesus in it? How are you going to live on Monday morning? That's his purpose in writing this letter, is to encourage and to instruct Christians in the first century Roman Empire of which slavery was a part. Uh, Second type of context is the cultural context. And Bjorn talked about the house codes that existed in the Roman Empire. Uh, In the first century, um, it was quite common for people to have house codes, um, ways that society maintained order. And so house codes always spoke to a few groups, always spoke to husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, those that existed within a household. And obviously society is very interested in keeping order A society flourishes when there's order. It does not flourish when there's disorder. And so there was Roman house codes. And um, maybe you didn't realize this, but as Christianity began, uh, it it was not thought well of by the surrounding culture. Matter of fact, um, Christians were charged with disruption, with disrupting society. Um, Christians were actually referred to in the first century as the atheists. You know that? And they were called the atheists because they didn't go to the Roman temple. They didn't have pagan gods around their homes. People couldn't see who they were worshiping. So because they wouldn't participate in the plurality of pagan worship that was happening in the day, people thought, oh, well, you don't really worship a god at all. People had no framework for understanding a god you could not see, who then had become a man, died, risen, and ascended again. And so they were referred to as the atheists, and people thought it was bad for culture, bad for society. These Christians were talking about another king, a king that's greater than our king. And the way they treated one another was different than the social order of the day. So people looked upon Christians with suspicion. So Paul is very concerned that Christians would not bring unnecessary offense to the cause of Christ. The gospel was offensive enough. So the the, the message of the cross was offensive enough, so he didn't want Christians to use um, the, the teaching they had from Christ as reason to, to live in a way that brought offense. And so he's saying, in your household relationships, make sure that we're continuing to live well so as not to bring disrepute on the name of Christ, which is why this is a common teaching in Paul's letter. In the book of Colossians, he says virtually the same exact thing as in Ephesians. In Titus, he says a similar uh, teaching about house codes. And the apostle Peter also touches on this in the letter of First Peter. It's very common in the New Testament letters to address house codes, how Christians are not to bring disrepute on the name of Christ and how we live in our households. But as Bjorn said last week, though Paul is maintaining order according to the social standard of the day, there's also quite a remix going on. 
Paul is quite subversive in a subtle way in how he presents these house codes. Uh, Let me illustrate. First of all, Paul directly addressed first women and then men, slaves and then masters, well, and first uh, children and then parents, slaves and then masters. The house codes of the day did not talk to all of those groups. It addressed men only about how to keep their home in order. And Paul is talking directly to all of these groups. What dignity there is there, that every person has agency because of what Christ has done. So Paul is directing them, uh, speaking directly to them. And also, also, did you notice the order of how he, of how he addressed them? Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. There's a subtle shifting of order. And order is always important in the scriptures. There's a subtle inversion going on. A gospel that comes and is received by the poor, by the oppressed, always with Jesus. He is concerned about those on the margins. There's a level of dignity being given to those that had less social standing in the day. So you can see there's a a subversive remix going on in how Paul uses or teaches about these house codes. And I'm going to talk later about how this remix actually uh, changed uh, the institution of slavery from the inside out. Last uh, type of context, the historical context. We have to understand slavery in the first century. Now, let me be clear. Slavery is never a good institution. Never, okay? That's not the way God designed humanity to, inter- uh, to, to relate. This has come about because of the fall, because we're sinful, broken people. Right from the very beginning, people have always sought to get ahead by abusing others. Groups have always done this since the beginning of time because of the fall. Slavery is not a good institution, but the slavery in first century Roman Empire was not the same thing as race-based chattel slavery that we've experienced in America. Not even close. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, author uh, book, uh, Confronting Christianity, she described some of the differences between the institution of slavery in ancient times and in America. Now, I've referenced Rebecca quite a bit. Some of you are probably saying, Sam, are you like a fanboy or something? Yes, I am. I think she's brilliant, all right? And she says this. She says, first of all, ancient slavery was not yoked to racial hierarchy, meaning there were lots of different ethnic groups that were slaves. It wasn't just one group that was considered lesser. It was a social system that had to do with economics, largely indebtedness that led someone into slavery or uh, prisoners of war, but it wasn't based on a group's inferiority just because of their race or ethnicity. Big difference. Secondly, it was common for people to sell themselves into slavery as it represented a form of government uh, or a form of employment that was preferable to destitution. Um, people actually in that day would have rather have been a slave than had no opportunity to gain income, to get food. I mean, we live in, in a time where that really isn't as much of a question for us. But that day, this was actually a social system that helped people be fed and live. Uh, Studies say that about a third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. It it was part of their social system. Again, not a good thing, but very different from what we have experienced in America. Uh, And third, while many slaves in the ancient world undoubtedly suffered the kind of brutality and exploitation experienced by many enslaved Africans in America, advancement was also possible 
within the slave status and beyond, even to the point of becoming a senior civil servant. Many slaves earned money and eventually bought their own freedom. Um, they became uh, uh, key contributing members in society. Um, people went on and had um, high-ranking professions. So it was, it was rarely a permanent status in the Roman Empire. Now, the fact that people in our country have used Ephesians 6 to justify the American slave trade was ridiculous for a number of reasons. But among them is the fact that we're talking about two very different social institutions. All right? Now, maybe after hearing about uh, those contextual issues, maybe you're not quite so appalled by the words of Ephesians 6, but you may now be thinking, okay, Sam, uh, that's helpful. It puts my mind a little bit more at ease. But you may then wonder, how is a letter written to slaves and masters in the Roman Empire in the first century, first century applicable to me today in the 21st century? Like, what do we do with this? How do we live based on this? And I'm glad you asked. I got some thoughts, all right? So part two, how does this apply to us? I'm going to talk about a personal application and a social application. Personally, Jesus transforms how we work. Jesus transforms how we work. Uh, the instructions of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, it's all about how we work in light of the gospel. The gospel in the first century and the gospel in the 21st century. And, and I actually would say this. If you're wondering how it applies to us today, like this was written to slaves and masters back then, I would say it's incredibly applicable to us today because if it could work in the first century for slaves and masters, it can work for us today in the 21st century in whatever work setting you find yourselves in. Now, we're all going to work in some manner or fashion, some for pay, some not for pay. Uh, work is about more than just getting paid. And work is about what we do to contribute to the common good. And we spend the vast majority of our lives working. We spend the vast majority of our lives working. So if the gospel doesn't inform our work, it doesn't really inform our lives. If the gospel isn't shaping our work, it's not shaping our life. Now, we all do different types of work, and, and as you know, there's always a social hierarchy to our work, right? There are some jobs that are considered more desirable than others. People who are on the top of the ladder, people who are on the bottom of the ladder. There's always a social hierarchy, and it's different depending on the culture, but there's always a social hierarchy with work. There are employees and employers. There are grunts and there are bosses. Uh, some of you work in roles that are looked down on. Others of you work in uh, roles that are looked up to. Some of you have bosses that might be unkind, unjust, or just plain jerks. Others of you might be a boss and have employees that you struggle to get to do good work for you. There are lots of challenges facing us in our work life. But the gospel transforms how we work. So let's consider what Paul has to say to those who work in socially lesser situations and those who work in socially greater situations. First, to those who work in socially lesser or more subservient roles. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, 
but as slaves of Christ. Do the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. What is Paul saying to those who work in socially lesser roles? He's saying, work hard. Work well. Not just when your boss is watching. Not just to earn a paycheck. Not just to get to the weekend. Uh, not just if you like the company or if the boss likes you. He's saying work hard and work well because work is a witness. What you do at work reflects uh, your faith in Jesus Christ. It reflects what you truly believe. So he's saying work hard, work well, regardless of who you work for, regardless of where you work. And then he tells us why. And we need the why. The what by itself <laughs> uh, isn't compelling. He tells us why we're to work this way. Because the truth is, all of us at some point are going to work in situations that aren't good. We're going to work for people who aren't kind. And what do we do when we're in those kind of situations? Well, Paul says you need to realize you work for Jesus. That though we all have bosses of some sort, they're not our true boss, our true Lord. I mean, Paul is saying to these slaves, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not people. If it's people, at some point we're all out. We all tap out because people do use and abuse us. But he says that's not uh, the real situation. In light of Ephesians 1 through 3, we know reality in this universe, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And through faith in Him, uh, He is our Master. We serve Him. Now, by serving others, we can actually serve Christ. And there's so much dignity here. For someone who is viewed by society as being property, Paul is communicating uh, to those people, you are not just property to the Lord. That you have a boss who not only knows you, but has died for you. I mean, no human boss does that. And so Jesus is saying to these slaves, Paul is saying to these slaves, that Jesus is actually your boss, and he's one you can serve wholeheartedly. And you can put your trust in. Uh, this past week, I had a, a trip uh, for, the, uh, for my work in the EFCA. I had a theology conference in Chicago. So I flew in there uh, Tuesday night, and my uh, Uber driver that picked me up had a hat sitting on her back um, seat uh, in, the, in the rear window. And it said, Jesus is my boss. And she had a pretty dingy car. It looked like she was working pretty hard, not getting a lot of money. And I thought, there you go. Uh, it's not the execs at Uber that are your true boss. It's not me, the one who's paying you. Um, if it's just one of those two things, she probably would get pretty frustrated during most of the day. Uh, but there was a higher view, a bigger view. Jesus is my boss. And I thought, I need this reminder. All of us need that reminder. Wherever we, actually, wherever we work, Jesus is actually our boss. So that's the first reason why uh, slaves or those in lesser situations you know, can actually work heartily, work well is because they know who their boss truly is. The second reason Paul gives is that there is a future payday. We're not just working for the next paycheck. Paul says, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. I mean, uh, well, my grandmother uh, used to have a, a phrase, I work for pay and not for fun. I want my pay and my work is done. A uh, little catchy phrase, all right? The problem is, if, if we only apply that to the here and now, it means I ain't working if I ain't getting paid. 
But when we think about this teaching, we're saying there is a great day of reward, a great day of reckoning coming. And with this end in view, we can continue to work hard and work well in a job even if some of the compensation is inadequate, even if we're struggling. Uh, my wife had to really lean into this truth. Uh, she worked for about a decade as a server at a restaurant. And any, any of you here have worked as a, as a server before? I figured a few of you, yeah, okay. Uh, as you know, um, when you are a server, your, most of your income comes based on tips. And those tips can be somewhat fickle. Uh, depending on who the person is you're serving. I actually worked as a server for, I don't know, about one month, but I was so bad at it, I you know, had to get done after that time. And when I worked as a server, I would quickly identify which of the tables I served I thought would give me the best tip, and they got my service. Now, when that's our motivation, we don't serve well. And I remember uh, this Wendy latching on to the fact that I serve Jesus, not necessarily these people. I, I serve Jesus through them. And whatever he gives me is from the Lord's hand. And it's a freedom that comes from recognizing I serve the Lord, he's my boss, and he will provide what I need. God provides our daily bread. And ultimately, there's a final reckoning coming where we will get all that, that we um, really need in Christ, ultimately. We have a boss in Jesus who is good. We have a future payday that is beyond compare. That frees those who serve in socially lesser roles to continue to work well. Paul goes on, he doesn't only address slaves, he addresses masters. So for those of you who work in more socially powerful situations, these words are to you. Ephesians 6, 9, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And what is Paul saying to do? He's saying, treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, he's referring back to what he said to slaves about their masters. And he said, treat them with respect, with sincerity of heart, serving the Lord, not just people. He's saying to masters, you do the exact same thing. You want to talk about countercultural and revolutionary in that day. Masters, serve your slaves in that way? Uh, with great respect, as if you were serving the Lord, not just people? That's what Paul was calling uh, masters to in that day. And it's what he's calling those in socially more powerful situations to today. To serve those who are working under you. To, to treat them with deep respect as if you were serving the Lord, not just managing an employee. See, the norm in our world is to seek positions of power for our own benefit, right? We want to climb the ladder in a company to get more pay, to have more respect, and Jesus is inverting this. He's saying we do this to serve. Um, and again, he tells us why. I love that Paul gives us motivation for what he's calling us to do. He says, you have a master too. You masters, you in socially powerful roles, uh, you haven't arrived at the top and you'll never arrive at the top. There is one and one only who is at the top. And there's a play on words going on here. When he says masters, it's the Greek word uh, kyrios, which is from which we get the word lord. And so he's saying, you, lower, you lowercase l lords, there's only one uppercase l lord, and one day you will stand before him. He's reminding them of this. There is one lord, and this lord, this master, cares 
about how you use your position to serve. That's what this master cares about. When Jesus was on earth, he said to his disciples who were jockeying for status, he said to them in Mark 10, 42-45, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus calls those with social status and power to use their position to serve. And we will give account for how we've served. Now, these instructions here, both to slaves and to masters, to those with socially less standing and those with socially greater standing, they really can change how we work. They are freeing. Uh, The gospel tells us that our identity, our security, our meaning is not wrapped up in what we do for our work. And we live in a culture that tells us the reverse. Whether you know it or not, our identity is almost always um, sought to be earned from our work. Those that are successful in climbing the ladder feel a greater sense of self-worth and identity. Those that haven't done so while climbing the ladder feel a lower sense of self-worth. But the gospel tells us our identity is not earned. Our identity is bestowed. God gives us our identity. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become the Lord's children. And if you're a child, you don't lose that status. We're not employees fearing the master's review. We are children who have already received his love. And when our identity is secure there, it changes our work. Uh, Tim Keller, I love this quote, he said this about our work. If our identity is in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts. We don't want either. We want our identity wrapped up in Christ and what he has done for us. So the gospel of, of Jesus is such good news for slaves and masters, for grunts and bosses. We have one Lord, and he has come for us, and he has died for us, and he has risen for us and ascended on high. And if we are in him, we have a future beyond compare. Friends, that gospel changes or changed how slaves and masters worked in the first century, and it changes how we work in the 21st century. So, for us today, as we read this, first of all, we should read this through the lens of our work. How is God calling us to work in the places to which he has sent us? The second and last, uh, what we're going to look at today, a way that we live this out, the way it applies to us, is there's a social application that Jesus transforms not only how we work, but how we work for social change. Jesus changes how we work for social change. And let's be clear, there's much that needs to change. This is why we have politics. I mean, all politics means it's the how the people are organized and how we relate together. We can't help but do politics because we live in a, in a society. And how are we going to relate together? How are we going to be organized? How do we work for the common good? That's politics. And there's a lot in our society and in every society that is broken and needs to be changed. The question is, how do we go about working for social change? Because so often, we go about it wrongly. And the gospel frees us to go about it rightly. 
Now again, let me remind you that Paul's purpose in writing this letter was not to express his opinion about slavery. Um, yet, yet, his instructions to slaves and masters does give guidance to Christians about how we can work for social change with our feet firmly planted in the gospel. And I would say, as Christians, we, we must be about these things. Things like protecting the unborn. Christians have always, throughout history, worked to be a society where we recognize the unborn are people, made in the image of God, and we want to protect the dignity of those people. Uh, Christians have always worked to care for the poor, recognizing that in this world, the poor are easily taken advantage of, and we want to protect, provide, and care for the poor, recognizing that the orphan, the immigrant, all of these people that are on the fringes of society, the Lord loves, and we live in societies that by default will abuse them, unless, unless we prioritize their care. So Christians work for the care of these groups. But there's lots of different opinions about how we do that best, right? That's where the divide comes. How do we best work to protect and care for these groups? Uh, let me give two, I think, clear ways we should do that from this passage. I know it doesn't solve all of the issues, but these are clear. First way Christians, or the first way that Jesus transforms how we work for social change. First, we prioritize people as we work for social change. We prioritize people as we work for social change. People, not just issues. It's all too easy to slide into trying to change an issue, change a, a culture, change a society, and forget we're talking about people. And this happens on both sides of the aisle. You know, whatever the issue is that we think needs to be addressed and changed, it is so easy to become more animated at seeing the issue changed than seeing people loved, served, cared for. And the gospel of Jesus Christ always, always recognizes the dignity of persons. Jesus came as a person. Jesus loves people. Jesus cares for slaves. He cares for masters. People. This passage reveals that how we interact with and treat people leads to cultural change. Um, that Paul wanted slaves and masters to treat one another with respect. That sounds so trite, but imagine if we did it. Imagine if we lived in a society where people truly respected one another. And it wasn't just, I want to change your view and get my agenda to be the one on top. But I'm going to treat you as a person with a respect, even though you're a different category than me or have a different belief than me, I'm going to treat you with respect. See, Paul didn't uh, dehumanize the opponent. I, I'm amazed by this. Paul elevated the dignity of the slaves without degrading the humanity of the masters. This isn't possible without the gospel. In our world, anytime we work for social change, what you'll see is one group elevating their cause by degrading the other. That's just how it happens in our world. The gospel says that Jesus died for slaves and masters, for victims and oppressors, that God loves all, and it's hard to fathom that, that God loves our enemies. The gospel gives us a justice that doesn't oppress. And so we respect the dignity of people and work to see people loved, cared for. So whatever the person is on the other side of the issue that you're passionate about, don't forget about the humanity of the person on the other side. Never dehumanize the person on the other side. 
Um, those on the other side of the political aisle, it's so easy uh, to talk about you know, the evil, the, the incorrectness. And there are rightness and wrongness of issues. We should address those things. We should work for truth without dehumanizing people. Uh, second way that Jesus transforms how we work for social change, that we prioritize the gospel as we work for social change. We prioritize the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we need the gospel. We need Jesus to free us, to empower us. When we sang today about the fact that the, the thing we ultimately long for, the future city, the city of God, the future kingdom of God, we can't bring about by our own strategy and work. We, we're not to be complacent. We're to work for the common good. But ultimately, we need Jesus, his spirit, to come in and to bring change, to change hearts, to change families, households, cultures. We need Jesus. And, and so as we work for social change, we don't forget where the power actually lies. It's the gospel of Jesus. And so right now, it's not all that palatable to talk about sin, the fact that all of us are sinful and we need our sin forgiven. And that when our sin is forgiven, there is a freedom that comes from being cleansed. And we're more able to relate to people as forgiven sinners when we deal with our own issues ourselves. And so we, 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 we believe the gospel ourselves and we share the gospel with others as we work for social change. So we need to do both. We need to prioritize the gospel and be working in all these areas of society to bring about the change that we believe is in line with God's word. Uh, so as we work for social change in different ways, um, whether it's protecting the unborn or caring for the poor and the oppressed, uh, whatever way it is that you're, that you're passionately working for change, remember the love, the forgiveness, the healing, the virtue that we need is found in Jesus Christ. So trust in him and call others to trust in him as you work for change. You know, for almost uh, 2,000 years now, uh, Jesus has been transforming lives and cultures. Uh, he transformed the lives of ordinary slaves and ordinary masters in the first century. He brought change to societies through those principles. I mean, wherever Christianity has gone, eventually what happened was the dignity of people was respected. Not perfectly, but everywhere it has gone, that has been the result. And we take for granted the idea of the dignity of every individual. That has not always existed in history. In the Roman Empire, that was a foreign concept. They, they did not believe that every human being had intrinsic worth. That was not accepted. It was Christianity and that alone that brought that idea into our world. That every person was made in the image of God. And every person is loved by God and Jesus died for. That idea began the concept that we know as human rights. Now, we live in a world today that wants to grab onto that principle and forget where it came from. We know where it came from. We know it is Jesus Christ who causes us to see people as of intrinsic worth and value. Wherever the gospel has gone, this change has eventually happened. Jesus is still bringing this change. He is still changing the lives of people. He's still changing societies. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the greatest need? Do you believe that he can transform your life? Are you letting him change how you go about your work? Are you letting him change how you work for the good of our society? Look to Jesus and trust in him. 
Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we are so thankful um, that you speak to us in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether we're living in first century Rome uh, as a slave or as a master or a 21st century uh, person as an employee or an employer. Uh, God, you know our situation. Matter of fact, your word tells us, Lord, that you have ordained sovereignly the times and places in which we are going to live. And Lord, you have chosen to interact with us uh, through your word in these locations. So God, for us here today, living in 21st century America, you know our challenges. And uh, Lord, we pray for your help. God, we pray for the culture in which we live. Uh, Lord, uh, I see a hunger. I also see a despair in our world as people search for for a deep meaning, people search for an ability uh, to, to really get along and to be unified, and yet we are so divided. Yet, Lord, we know what you have offered us in your gospel. And we believe that what you have done, Jesus, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God, we, you also know what we all do for our individual work. Uh, you, you know the, um, whether it's in the home, outside the home. Um, God, you've given us this work, and we thank you for it. God, I pray that you'd help us to see our work uh, Lord, as something of intrinsic value to be able to contribute to the common good. So whether we work in a tough situation or, or a really great situation, God, I pray that we would do our work as unto the Lord. And so please uh, give us eyes to see, even this week, how our work can be used by you to point others to the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.